Thank you, worship team, and once more, a happy Easter to you. A long time ago, in what seemed like a galaxy far, far away, there was a group of people who stood around and looked at the world and realized it didn't make sense. That on the one hand, part of their nation was being under drought conditions, and on the other hand, just a few hundred miles away, there was a land of plenty. They realized that some of their children were being born and died young, and others were being born and lived long. And they began to realize and observe that life is full of this interplay and mix between what is perceived to be evil and good, and right and wrong, and justice and injustice, and began to wonder, how is it that we can get on top of the world in which we live? Where on the one hand, there seems to be really great things happening, but on the other hand, there seems to be really bad things happening. And there seems to be a constant interplay, not only at a national level, but also at an internal level, between things that I wish I would do differently, but then I don't. And my own failures and my own successes and the interplay of good and evil, right and wrong, and just the rhythm of life seems to play around everywhere, including in my own soul. And wouldn't it be great if we could figure out a way to build a system in which we could control the world and outcomes. If we could pull certain levers, and if we pulled the right levers, we could keep the bad things from happening and maybe try to secure the good things a little bit. What if we could always live in the land where there was plenty and never live in the drought conditions? What if our children always grew old and never died young? What if all the good things would happen and all the bad things could be avoided? What if there was a way that we could control what seems to be uncontrollable? And so this group of people stood around and created a system, a religious system full of invisible and yet in their mind powerful gods and goddesses who if the levers were pulled in the right directions and just the right levels, if you tried just hard enough and sacrificed just correctly and avoided and did and all these things, you might be able to secure the blessings and avoid all the bad things that the world has to offer. These people are the Greeks that I'm referring to. The Greeks created what is now known as a a pantheon of gods, a whole host of gods and goddesses, the king of which is Zeus. This may bring back bad memories from high school or college when you had to read about and try to understand how all of these gods and goddesses worked. But this was their point, make no mistake about it. If you know the rules of the universe and you know how to play the game, you can secure a winning hand. And so Zeus became the king in their world of all of the gods and goddesses and in truth became the king of all men, the father of all men. Zeus, this is the way it worked really simply. Zeus is in charge. He has a bunch of gods and goddesses underneath him. And don't be a numbskull and you'll be okay. It's kind of how that worked. So Zeus was the king. He, in the Greek mythological world, he won the lot between him and his two brothers to take over from his father Kronos, or time. He took over the, the rule of the sea and, um, or the sky and uh, the land. So Zeus is pictured with a thunderbolt in his hand. If you do something wrong, this is what he's going to strike you with. He's also kind of a protector of people. 
So Zeus, if things go badly, he will unfurl his wrath on the world and bring about storms and tempests and darkness. If things go well, then he will allow the soaking rain to come in and, and give life to, uh, to our world. At a personal level, if you do something that is wrong, one of the gods will come on you, or maybe he will too, depending upon the degree in which you do that. But he's also a benevolent father. Zeus had an interesting problem, however, and that is that while he was married to a goddess named Hera, he also was very unfaithful to her, and he had a number of children, some of who were born out of wedlock. This is amazing how imaginary affairs happen, let alone real affairs. Okay, so Zeus evidently is going about to whoever he might like, and he has a daughter and several children. One of his daughters in the Greek pantheon of gods is called Dike. Dike's interest is in what we call justice. Dike's role essentially is to administer justice to the world to create, in a way, a space where those human beings who want to do the right thing and want to have their life count will want to be on DK's side, where she will encourage the noble-hearted, where she will administer justice to those who are wicked or evil, who cut corners economically, who don't act justly in business or at home, that DK looks around and essentially if you are doing the right things and you are on DK's side, you will have the hope, the hope of all humanity is kind of encaptured in her. In other words, all that you ever hoped for in life would be found in her. The desire to stand rightly before man and before God is found in DK. So that you would look around and say, you know, if you ever can get to the point in life where you can say, no one owes me anything, I don't owe anybody. I've been honest. I've been fair. I've been open. I've been humble. I've worked hard. I'm standing justly and rightly before mankind. That is what DK, in the Greek world, is encouraging you to do. DK had a sister named Irene, which we get our English word Irene from, if you know anyone named Irene. Her name would mean, in the Greek world, peace. DK's sister, Irene, peace, comes along with her. And so if you are at a point in life where everything is cool, everything is good with man and God, you have reached the point of where DK is saying, well done. And Irene, peace, comes along with that. And so this is the world in which the Greeks created, a world in which you pull the right levers and you can control things. Now, the Greeks weren't the only people ever in the history of humanity to do this. Early on in the Christian faith, Christians began to look around and say, wait a minute, there seems to be injustice, there seems to be inequity. How do we handle ourselves in this world? And Christians, early on, after the time of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, they spoke Greek, believe it or not. And the New Testament that we have now is actually written in Greek. And so guess what language carried these religious ideologies of the Greek world? And that is Greek. And so when early Christians at and around the resurrection of Jesus Christ, they're trying to make sense of the world around them. They are using a language called Koine Greek. They're using a language in which the very language itself is the vessel in which all of these Greek mythological characters are carried and are carried right into the mindset of the early Christian church. The early Christians saw a real problem with how the Greeks were seeing the world. They realized here's the big problem. If it's true that in the world you can control certain levers and get outcomes, the problem is this, and the problem is me. 
Human failure is the problem for the system. In other words, I know, and, and you know if you're honest, I am never going to be consistent enough for someone like DK, who administers justice, to look at me and say, you are always good, because quite frankly, I am not always good. I don't always do it right. Uh, conversely, not only is human failure a problem, but this is important too, human success is a problem. So when I do succeed, when I am noble, and I do something right, and I perceive to be blessed by someone like a DK, I know in the back of my mind it's only a matter of time until I am not noble, until I blow it again, until I fall back into, and I feel the weight even of success. So the problem in a system like that is the pressure it puts on humanity to nail it, to get it just right. And so the early Christians realized this. And this is why one of the early Christian writers, Paul, wrote this to one of his earliest audiences in Rome. And he wrote this. Isn't that great? He wrote, Dikaiothentes un ek pisteos irenein. Now, don't be too excited or impressed by that. It took me about three weeks to get that down, all right? Here's what he wrote. Dikaiothentes, first word. The root of that, dikaio, dike, Greek goddess of justice. So when you hear that and you're an early New Testament believer, you're like, wait a minute, this is the same word for dike, right? I mean, Zeus, goddess, and all, this is the world in which I live. Wait a minute, you're telling me dikaiothentes. Un ekpisteos irene. Remember, irene, irene, peace. Wait a minute, all of a sudden, in one phrase, Paul, you're telling me, you're tracking with me that this world in which I live, in which my neighbors and friends and business leaders are telling me that my world will be okay if I do the right things to please DK and that I'll get, end up getting peace, you are now going to introduce to me a way to get justice and find peace that may be different than the way in which I was raised. And this is why the New Testament translators translate this phrase this way. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace. And Paul takes this ancient, ancient, ancient religious system and way of seeing the world and translates it into the Christian world and says, listen, the way that you are used to seeing the world that you would do the right things in order to get God's favor, that if you did the wrong things, people or others would punish you, and that these invisible forces, you're never going to pull or push whatever leave is just right, and you are at the mercy of all these mysterious religious things. You ultimately want peace and fulfillment in your life. Like You want to be happy, for lack of a better term. You want fulfillment. You want justice. You want right standing before God and man. That's what you want. That is what DK provides. That is what dikaiothentis provides. That is what justice means. But he changes the game. He says, let me take it away from the Greek world, and let me tell you that you will find what you really want with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is why the resurrection matters. Because when Jesus comes back to life, all of a sudden it opens up a brand new world for everybody to see the world and all the injustices, all the good and the evil, all the right and the wrong in a brand new way. And to say, wait a minute, wait a minute. 
maybe, maybe there's another way to see the world. Maybe that we can be justified through faith and have peace, not through decay and not through Irene and certainly not through Zeus, but what if through Jesus Christ? And then he goes on to say this, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And here's what Paul is doing. He is taking this idea that there is a way to be justified. There's a way to find fulfillment. There's a way to find peace. And pulling out the major problem of most religious systems, and that is the problem of you and the problem of me, the problem of my consistency and the problem of your consistency, and saying, all of a sudden, through faith alone, you can find fulfillment. Because you're never going to be good enough or bad enough on your own. And he takes away, kind of abolishes the concept that your behavior and your awesomeness or your failure in any way impacts your ability to find God or connect with men. There's a profound, profound introduction that Paul gives to us to how in the world we can begin to see how we stand before God and how we stand before men. And I want you to see it with me. So I want you to turn with me, if you can, to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 5. As we begin this new series that we're calling Abolished, You Are Free, essentially I want to help um, with you, for lack of a better term, um, remove from your soul, if I can, to kind of unshackle from your soul this feeling that sometimes we walk around with that our um, fear, sin, or failure is, is, is deeply like holding us back and will deeply impress us and impact us going forward, that we will never be able to get away from the things that draw us down now. There is, if, if, if I can in any way encourage you to be open to rethinking the idea that the sin and failure and shame that has marked you in the past has to be a part of your future. This is what I would love to do in this series. That that stuff that's shackled to our soul of how we think we see ourselves. I want to introduce to you in Romans chapter 5 and then 6 and then 7 these ideas that we are actually, as Christians, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you're actually free free from all that, and in fact, have never really been shackled to it in the first place. So Romans chapter 5, if you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew around you, and I invite you to turn there if you can, you can find it in the table of contents, it's about the um, seventh book, sixth book into your uh, New Testament, about two-thirds of the way in Romans chapter 5. Look again at verses 1 and 2, since you uh, are are right there, and then we're going to go right into verse 3. So Paul's writing, he says, therefore, since we have been justified, we've been made right, through faith, we have peace. You have the peace that we're looking for. And again, it's not through what we've done, but again, through faith with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So with that as background, 
if you stop it right there, it sounds really awesome. Like, think about that for a minute. It sounds really awesome. It sounds like, man, we are saved, and this is going to be awesome. Like, wow, this is really cool. We are not going to have any problems. Like, I'm, I'm saved into something that's just tremendous. I mean, doesn't that sound pretty, pretty good? But here's the experience we have in life. I could almost ask you to raise some hands if you wanted to, and that is that life isn't always that awesome. Like, there's great suffering that happens in life, isn't there? Like, just because I'm standing rightly before God, I mean, this is, this is theoretical. This is, like, philosophical. Like, it's hard to get your mind around it because the reality is there is suffering. There is difficulty. It's not just always, like, perfect like this. And so Paul addresses that in verse 3. Look what he says. He says, not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know, here's what he says next, because we know that suffering produces perseverance. And perseverance, character. And character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom He has given us. So check out what Paul's doing. He's saying, instead of asking the question, why do good people suffer? He's going to be asking the question, what will suffering produce in me? That's a deeper question. That's a more mature tour question than simply, why do I have to suffer? It's like, what is this suffering teaching me? What am I becoming through this? That's a different question. And then look what he does with that. He says, suffering produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Verse 5, and hope does not disappoint us. Now listen, if that's true, check out the, the projection here. If hope Let me back it up with you. Stay in your text and back it up. Hope is tied to character, right? We're going backwards in your text. Hope is tied to character, right? Character is tied to perseverance, right? Perseverance is tied to what? One person at a time to avoid confusion. Tied to suffering. See, we went backwards. I know it's kind of confusing, but we did. Hope, let's do it one more time. I want you to see it in your text. Look in your Bible there if you can. Hope is tied to character, character to perseverance, perseverance is tied to suffering. So, it is only logical to follow this way. If you are dealing with suffering, hope is coming. Right? Right? I mean, that, that is the logical progression that we walk it through. Suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And then, here's what he says about hope. You're going to have to argue and wrestle with this in your own heart. Hope does not disappoint us. So, suffering will not disappoint you. That's a tougher pill to swallow. Suffering is by default disappointing, isn't it? Not necessarily. Not the end result of it. Not what it will produce in you. Hope doesn't disappoint. Why? Okay, because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Now, if you actually want to wrestle with this and actually get down and wrestle this one to the ground, this is hard to get down. Again, again, again. This can be extremely difficult and almost impossible to get your mind around. Is this really true? And so here's what Paul does. And again, I think, I think that he's speaking to the people in this world who uh, are coming from a Greek mythological background, and now we're into the Roman times too, but it's still rolling in here, okay? He's speaking to people who are used to having conversations about invisible things, which is kind of what we're doing now, right? We're having conversation, well, I'm talking, but we're kind of talking a little bit, about things that are invisible and philosophical. And so he asks you, he asks us to believe something that is invisible and to change our lives around it. So because it's difficult, I think he wrote this next in verse 6. Because I think it's almost like the people reading us were like, wait a minute, what, what are you saying, Paul? This sounds too difficult. He said, 
You see, at, at just the right time, in other words, to explain this more, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God, and what's that next word? But God demonstrates or shows, depending upon your text, but God demonstrates, verse 8, his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So listen, Paul is saying, I don't want you to change your life on what I'm saying or on ideas or even what God has said. I don't want you to change your life on what anyone is saying. I want you to look at what God has done and believe in that. God demonstrated his own love for us in sending his son Jesus Christ, an actual historical event that can be checked for its accuracy. And so I want you to, in the middle of the times when it's difficult and suffering, difficult and struggle, I want you to look at something not that I'm saying, but at something that has been done. And remember, that is the basis of your hope. You ever wonder why God would do this? If you ever interacted with these verses before, look at it again. Christ died for the ungodly, verse 6. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Why? Why would God do that? Why would Christ do that? I mean, seriously, think about that for a minute. Like, why? Why in the world? Maybe if, maybe if, maybe if, like you or me were going to be super awesome, maybe, and worth it. Maybe if we were going to be better than him someday, like it might be worth trading places. But doesn't the Bible, doesn't that just read like while we were still sinners, Christ died for us? I mean, isn't that what it says? And here, here's my concern, okay? Let me, let me just try to make this really simple. Sometimes I think, sometimes I think that for, for all of us, our experience in this world is that we are so used to living with ourselves that we're used to the disappointments of our own hearts. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt like... You're just not enough. You're just not consistent enough. You're not loving enough. You're not good enough. Have I mean, you ever felt that? I'm not just talking about Dr. Phil moment here where let's do some group psychology. I'm just kind of saying, listen, that there are so many things that if we're honest, we'll look at and say, I just am not quite where I would love to be. And I don't know about you, but I find it to be very difficult sometimes to move past some of that push through that and remember who I really am. So when I see a verse like this, but God demonstrates his own love for us while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I see a verse like that and here's what it tells me. It tells me this up here. That you are worth more than your sin, failures, and fear. Why would Christ die for you when you're a sinner? Here's a really simple answer. You're worth it. You're worth it. Again, let me tell you, I'm not just here pumping up some kind of 
like uh, ego thing for you. I'm just telling you, like theologically, Bible stuff. Like you're, you are worth it, and you are worth more than your sin, failures, and fear. You just are. So while you're a sinner, while you're a sinner, not when you were awesome, but when you were a sinner, Christ said, "Ah, you're worth it. You're worth it. You're worth it." And conversely, let me put it this way. You are also worth more than even your greatest successes. That's on the other side of it. That's very important. Listen, you, no matter how great you're going to be, your success doesn't bring about God's extra favor on you. Like He doesn't look at you with any greater love and greater favor because you're killing it with your business, or you're killing it with your family, or you're killing it spiritually. You memorize the whole Bible backwards and forwards. That isn't like God is like, well, now you're worth it. You know, it's just like you are worth it. Not because of your great success and not because of your failure, but you are worth it. And here's the issue. like Understanding how much you are worth And in this verse, here's what this verse teaches me. That you are actually worth the life of the Son of God. As you are. You are worth the life of the Son of God. In the middle of your sin, in the middle of your failure, in the middle of your shame and mist and all this stuff, you are worth that. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And what happens next is amazing. What happens next is we become friends of God. Check out the next section there in verse 9. Verses 9 to 11. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies... We were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. That word reconciliation shows up in there a few times. All that means is, listen, we had a fight and we made up. Okay, someone was whatever, cyberbullying me, you know, now we're cool. I mean, we were on, you know, in the wrong direction, and now we're going right. Reconciliation is simply, man, I'm making it right with a relationship that was wrong. And so what God is saying is, listen, I'm making it right with you. I'm, I'm making this relationship with you right, and you're now a friend of mine. In fact, in the New Testament, one of the um, authors in the New Testament, John, said this, that when you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have the right to become a child of God with all the attending privileges of that. One of the most famous prayers in the New Testament that is repeated over and over and over and over and over again is the Lord's Prayer, right? Remember how that begins? I'm going to say the first word, you say the second. Our, our Father. That image of the Father is one of the most dominant images of how we should relate to God throughout the Scriptures. As a Father. That when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we have the right to become children of God. Who are reconciled to Him. Who 
don't have to chase down some invisible gods or goddesses to find fulfillment, but find dikaiothunes, dikaio, find justice and fulfillment through faith, through believing. You can find satisfaction. I can actually rest in that. And so here's the struggle of humanity. If you're honest and look in the mirror, you see the things about yourself that you wish weren't there. It is not difficult to become shackled to them and feel like they are always going to follow you going forward. In every season of my life, I've tried to get rid of the habit. I've tried to move forward, and I can't. I can't. Like, I'm never going to measure that up. Or, listen, if you, especially if you're a young lady right now, and you're still thinking about somehow that the world revolves around how pretty or beautiful you can make your face, listen, or your body, listen, your value is not tied up in your looks or what you can do. Your worth is the value of the Son of God in the middle of your worst day. He says, you're worth it. You're worth it. And what does it take to get to that point? Faith. Just believe. It doesn't take all dolling up in the mirror, you know, men, it doesn't take us being awesome at work and being super successful in all that we do. All those things are secondary and immaterial in light of finding hope and peace and fulfillment, which comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And so, we are reconciled children of God. If there's anything that I can do, anything at all that I can do, to help you remember who you are, that you are no longer, look right here for a minute, you are no longer a slave to fear, to your past, to your failure, to sin. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you are no longer a slave to that fear. But you are a child of God. And if that is true, that is a life changer. By faith alone, in Christ alone, you are no longer shackled to your past. You are indeed a child of God. Can you imagine what it would be like to believe that? Can you imagine what it would be like to look in the mirror and see a face and a life that says, the Son of God died for me as I am, and came back to life that I could believe. And in my moments when I doubt that when there's suffering and difficulty and struggle, I can look at not just what God says, but what he demonstrated in coming to die for me. I can see that. And that reminds me that I am a child of God. I am no longer a slave to fear. It's amazing. There's a new song to us. We're going to sing here in a moment. Some of the lyrics go this way. I'm surrounded by the arms of the Father. I'm surrounded by songs of deliverance. We've been liberated from our bondage. We're the sons and daughters, and let us sing our freedom.
And I hope that the refrain of this song will stick with you as you think about the impact of Easter. And let me say this to those here this morning or those listening online later who are, who are not followers of Jesus Christ, like you haven't placed your faith in him. Again, our cards on the table, we hope that for you. Like we think placing your faith in Jesus Christ is the best thing that you can do, both for now and for the future. Like just something that we think is the best thing that we can, we can do. You're placing your faith into something to find peace and fulfillment and hope, right? I mean, it's just the way it is, whether it's your reputation, your job, your family, your kids, your own looks, whatever it is, you're placing your faith in something. I just want to tell you, consider what God demonstrated in Jesus Christ in bringing him to this planet, allowing him to die and come back to life again. He demonstrated his love for us in this, and that's where we can place our hope, that we are, therefore, no longer slaves to sin, no longer slaves to fear. We are, come on, go on. We are children of our Father who art in heaven. Will you pray with me? Our good God and heavenly Father, we thank you for the reminders of some things that we might already know, at least in part and sometimes struggle to allow to sink down deep into our soul. I pray for us as young men and young women, as middle-aged men and women and older men and women, that you would help us today again to, as we reflect on the resurrection of Jesus Christ on this Easter Sunday morning, that the empty tomb can remind us again of this truth, that we are reconciled through this act. We are brought into good relationship with a Father God who did the work to bring us in right relationship, to justify us. So we don't have to work for this anymore. We can rest and trust and be reminded that we are no longer, no longer slaves to sin and fear and failure. And the sense of inevitability that sometimes comes along with us and tracks in us and the discouragement we sometimes feel about ourselves and our limitations and our future, that that can get pulled away and fall into the background as we remember that is not what life is about anyway. Father, help us. Help us to believe and to live as children of yours in light of the resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. And it is in his name that we will pray, asking you to do in us what you will. We will pray in Jesus' name.